we're always going to understand ourselves through metaphor. I don't think that we can make sense of the world without using metaphor. We were talking about how the way we talk about our interior lives is entirely metaphorical. And so we're kind of stuck in this conundrum. I'm really interested in the idea that we're like stuck with language and we're stuck with metaphor. And eventually those metaphors are going to change. We're back with Megan O'Giblin. I introduced her previously. She's badass. She's a writer. She's awesome. If you listened to the last episode, you also know that she is very smart and fun to listen to. So we're going to listen to her some more. And if you think that Megan is fun to listen to, you should definitely read her book, which is called God, Human, Animal, Machine. And it was recommended to me by Amazon's algorithms because I'm working on a book that is nominally about technology. So I'm very excited to talk about it. And I loved it. I was going to include this in one of my favorite books I read in 2021 in the roundup that I did for this podcast, but I knew that you were coming on the podcast. And so I wanted to save it. So I read this in 2021, but it is going to be included as one of my favorite books in 2022. I can already tell. So welcome. Tell us about dead metaphors. I talk a lot about metaphors in the book. I'm interested in the history of metaphors, metaphors where we've forgotten the origins of them in particular, which there's surprisingly a lot of. I think the example I use in the book is kick the bucket. When you're talking about somebody who died, there's all of these folk explanations for where we got this, but nobody actually knows where it came from. I was fascinated about this idea of old ideas or old concepts that persist in language after we'd forgotten where they came from. I was particularly interested in how this idea persisted in conversations about technology, which are full of metaphors. We talk about how the brain is like a computer, computers are like brains. And where did that come from? I think it's something that we take for granted. We sometimes don't even realize that we're using metaphorical language. I had this revelation where I realized every time somebody said, oh, I have to process this information. We didn't have that until we are computers. It's a metaphor or even something simple like saying, I have to retrieve this memory from my brain. We don't have a memory the way that a computer does in our brain. That's not how memory works, but we tend to think of our minds through the lens of these technologies that we're very familiar with. One starting place of the book was tracing those metaphors back to their origin. And then also thinking about how they were in conversation with or surviving older religious metaphors about human nature as well. That's one of the parts of your book that I found so fascinating was thinking about metaphor. You mentioned a conference where was it Chalmers challenged a bunch of brain scientists to describe human behavior without reverting to a... Yeah, without using any metaphors. I don't think it was Chalmers. It was somebody else. I can't remember his name now, but he's a cognitive scientist who basically at a very elite institution, he doesn't name it, it's anonymous, but he asked them to try to describe human thinking or cognition without using computational metaphors and nobody could do it. To me, that's just telling of how entrenched these metaphors have become the fact that we can't even talk about what our brains are doing without invoking technology. I found that fascinating. One of my favorite stories in your book is the story about the golem, and you tell it beautifully in the book. I'm just going to summarize it here for listeners who haven't read your book yet. Basically, there was this golem that a rabbi created to defend the Hebrews in the town from attacking whoever. And he created this golem and he put the name of God in the golem's mouth written on a piece of paper. He wasn't sure if the golem as an automaton needed to keep the Sabbath or not. But just to be safe, he would take the piece of paper out of the golem's mouth so it wouldn't be able to perform any work on the Sabbath. But then one day the rabbi forgot to take the piece of paper out of the golem's mouth and the golem killed the rabbi. 
or tried to kill the rabbi. It's different in different stories. There's this tradition of the golem in rabbinical literature, this idea of a creature that's made out of clay. So it's this really early idea of an automaton, an example of humans creating life. And it was a big idea in Kabbalah in particular. The book explores all these parallels between technology and religious narratives and spiritual narratives. It's almost like a Frankenstein myth, this idea that the creator is killed by his creation. And by his negligence to keep the Sabbath on behalf of his creation or something. But the way this ties into MIT is in the versions of the story where the rabbi survives, he invents a prayer to resurrect the golem at the end of time so that the golem can fight Galactus or whoever we have to fight at the end of time. And he passed this prayer down through the lineage of his family and that every boy in his lineage at their bar mitzvah is told this prayer. And then there were two scientists at MIT who told the story and they both said, oh my God, I was told that prayer too. And they wrote it down on a piece of paper and they compared it and it was the same. And Marvin Minsky came out, they told him the story. He goes, yeah, they told me that prayer too. I forgot it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an amazing story. And I found it in this sort of obscure book by a Harvard Divinity student who was spending time at MIT and she had heard it and it's been confirmed in some other sources. But yeah, I was fascinated by this idea that What are the odds, first of all, that these three men who had heard this story as a child about resurrecting the golem, they end up at the leading robotics department in the country working with Marvin Minsky. And was there something in that myth that got them interested in creating life? Or was it just a coincidence? I read actually the memoir of one of the graduate students, and he talked about how he thinks about his work in the terms of these Kabbalistic ideas of the word of God is the origin of everything and that the world can be reduced to this numerical pattern of language. This is basically what he believed that he was doing was using numbers, using code to create life. You don't usually hear people who are in AI talk about their work in terms of those older spiritual legacies, but a lot of those early pioneers in artificial intelligence were thinking about those older narratives. Yeah, I think by necessity they were thinking about those things because i mean all the equipment they were using had basically been designed to build the bomb i know from reading dyson's stuff and all these that they were very conscious of the fact that they had just done a horrible thing and they didn't want to do more horrible things do you believe that thought is possible without language no i don't think so in fact i don't think that thought is possible without metaphor It gets really tricky because a lot of my book is critiquing metaphor, talking about how metaphors have led us astray or maybe have caused us to think about things in a misleading way. I was talking about this once at a talk I was giving at a conference, and one of the questions was, how do we get away from metaphor? We have all of these technological metaphors for human nature, and none of them are accurate. How do we move beyond that? And I was not able to answer that question. And I don't think I was in the book either in a satisfying way, just because we're always going to understand ourselves through metaphor. I don't think that we can make sense of the world without using metaphor. We were talking about how the way we talk about our interior lives is entirely metaphorical. And so we're kind of stuck in this conundrum. I'm really interested in the idea that we're like stuck with language and we're stuck with metaphor. And eventually those metaphors are going to change too. This is another question I got a lot after I wrote the book was, well, what is the next metaphor going to be? If technology or computers is not the answer to how our minds work, then how should we be thinking about it? 
And it's just impossible to answer that question, like saying, what is the next paradigm going to be? It's going to be something beyond how we're thinking about it now. I am fascinated by those questions and by those problems. And I guess part of the work I was doing in the book was just trying to remind myself that these things are metaphors and to remind the reader too that a lot of the ways in which we understand ourselves is through these figurative lenses. The other interesting thing that I think about sometimes is maybe it's true. Maybe people in the 19th century, maybe their brain did work like a steam engine. And maybe people in the middle of the 20th century, maybe they did work like a telephone and ours works like a computer because that's the way we conceive it. That's a really interesting point too, is that a lot of the way we experience our minds is how we've been taught to think about them. And that actually, you know, when you say, oh, I'm processing information right now, when you're using that metaphor, in a way you are thinking about your brain as though it's a computer. If it is true that our consciousness is just language, colored by the language that we use, yeah, those metaphors do matter. And it does change the way that our interior lives function. It refers back to James a little bit in that I read the study that the color blue doesn't occur in the Iliad or the Odyssey. And some scholar used this to conclude that ancient Greeks didn't see blue. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like a 19th century scholar probably would never say I'm processing that information, but they would have a different metaphor for the same thing. If thought is metaphor, I wonder how much that metaphor changes the way that the thoughts work. I think it does. If we can go back to James <laughs> for a minute, Ned Block wrote a critique of his book and said, you're actually confusing the concept of consciousness with consciousness. He said, basically, you know, you say that consciousness arose in the second century BC, but actually it was just that people came up with the language to talk about introspection and self-awareness and things like that. And this is one of the things that Daniel Dennett actually defended. James, he, he said, no, Ned Block was wrong there. Actually, that's the same thing. The concept of consciousness and consciousness is the same thing. You can't talk about people having consciousness before they were able to talk about it. The same way that you can't talk about history existing before historians, or you can't talk about morality existing before humans created the concept of good and evil. That those are concepts that are bound up with what they describe. I think it's also important to talk about your journey from Bible school to this podcast. I grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist home. I was homeschooled up until 10th grade and went to Moody Bible Institute when I was 18. It's a very small, very conservative Christian school in Chicago. Really, the Moody Bible Institute is conservative? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have friends with somebody who went to Bob Jones, and she says that actually Moody was the liberal college in their <laughs> circle. But I think that's the only other institution that would consider Moody more liberal. Yeah, it's really up there with that super old school fundamentalist doctrine. So I studied theology there for two years. I ended up having, I guess you could call a crisis of faith while I was there. I started to question a lot of the beliefs that I'd held for most of my life and ended up losing my faith and then leaving after my second year there. Technology is something I just stumbled into, really. Somebody gave me actually a copy of Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. And I was really fascinated by... The ideas he was talking about, particularly about mind uploading and the difference between the mind and the brain and the mind-body problem, how these were things that I had studied in Bible school. We were reading the church fathers in the third and fourth century who were talking about it in terms of the resurrection and the afterlife. And there was this big debate about whether 
you needed the body to be resurrected or if you could just have the spirit, which is sort of the more Greek idea. So they were basically having these same debates. I mean, we were having these sort of debates in Bible school. I had no idea that this was related to things that people were discussing in terms of technology or in terms of debates about consciousness, but it was essentially sort of those same ideas in a very primitive form. Yeah, I just got really interested in technology and was reading about it sort of in isolation for a long time, just out of my own curiosity. And then I started writing some tech criticism maybe about 10 years ago. Yeah, I've been writing sort of about the connections between technology and religion. And that's really what led me to writing this book that was partially about consciousness, because I realized that that was really the central question that I was interested in is what is consciousness, which is, you know, one of those questions that there's no answer to. I knew that at the outset of writing the book, and I think part of what really drew me to that idea is I grew up with this idea of God, this thing that was totally beyond human understanding that you couldn't wrap your mind around, no matter how intelligent of a theory you came up with, it was just beyond human understanding. And I think consciousness is a thing that felt like the closest thing to the way that people talked about God, just something that was completely beyond our current paradigms and our ability to describe. I don't think any of these people, Ray Kurzweil, all these tech giants, they don't know that religious people have been talking about this stuff for centuries. They don't know they're having the same conversation. And so it's really interesting to see it from your perspective, because you know it so deeply and you just recognize it for what it is. It's weird to have been able to experience those things side by side. I think you're right. There is this historical amnesia when people are talking about technology today. And I think on the other side of it, people who were in the church were talking about these issues with no awareness that they were still these contemporary problems. What does it say about this debate that it keeps coming up? One of the things that I think is that we don't really understand how much our culture in the West is influenced by Christianity. All of our academics for 2000 years were monks, pretty much. All of these problems that we're talking about now with theories of mind, the problems of consciousness, they have origins in medieval philosophy. And they were, yeah, religious problems originally. A couple episodes ago, we had a scholar of early American history, and he's a Puritan expert. And so we actually got into a lot of predestination. You talk about that in your book. I see that cropping up a little bit in the tweets of Elon Musk that it's inevitable that we're going to have the singularity, right? And that the singularity is going to eclipse us in knowledge. And then the logical outgrowth of that is that if everything we think about the universe and we think about science is true, that we're someday going to find the one unified theory of science, then the singularity will, in theory, find that. And then once it finds that, it will also harness enough computer power to compute anything it wants. It will become Laplace's demon that knows the position of every atom in the universe, and it will therefore know exactly what we're doing right now because it'll be able to see into the past and know exactly what we're going to do in the future. So our destinies are already predestined by the fact that the singularity will someday exist. That's fucked up. <laughs> yes, yes. This idea of like technological determinism, you see that a lot now where it's this unquestioning, well, this is where the future is headed. And it's already been said there's really nothing we can do. A lot of my writing about technology kind of grew out of this frustration too, that I felt as though people were treating the technologies that we have now as inevitable and not thinking about how they were designed, who they were designed by, who they're supposed to be serving. And is there sort of an alternate course we could be taking? Yeah. And then there's this other layer of determinism too, where we're creating these technologies that are eventually going to become almost godlike in their omniscience. 
this craving for some sort of intelligence that is going to know us better than we know ourselves. That to me felt like a very Christian and particularly a very Calvinist idea, this desire to create something bigger than what we can understand. Do you ever feel guilty about ceasing your belief in God? And do you ever doubt that you may have been mistaken and that really Jesus loves you? I think this is the tricky thing about leaving the faith and doing so in a way that felt intellectually honest and wasn't a rebellion. Something that I realized really early on in thinking through these theological problems is that I can't prove that God doesn't exist. And really, I can't prove that the Christian God doesn't exist and that I'm not going to go to hell after I die. That's always going to be sort of an unknown. So those sort of questions of the existence of God or not, that's something you have to put aside. And so the thing that I had to come to terms with was even if God exists, even if every word of the Bible is true, I don't want to worship this God. I don't know if those would be the terms today under which I would leave the faith that they were at the time. So I think because of that, because I wasn't able to just say, oh, this is a hogwash, this is a fairy tale. There always have been those moments of doubt, but I think they've become less frequent over the years. It's not something that I'm preoccupied with by any means today. There are so many stories of the opposite direction. Most scientists and intellectuals don't talk about their Christian roots once they come over to the other side. And I think it's important and amazing that you do. And it's informative to me as an atheist. I was born and raised as an atheist. And so I had a bit of the opposite of your experience, which is in my 20s, I got really interested in learning about religion. And I went to all these churches because I realized millions of people do this. Am I missing something? And I realized that they're communities. If you grow up in these communities, you're going to put aside some part of reason to continue to be a member of them. And that made perfect sense to me. And I didn't want to be a part of it. So if I could just suck it up and believe in Mormonism, I absolutely would. <laughs> You ended your book with a description of an AI chatbot that you downloaded and started talking to. And of course, the first thing I did when I put down your book was try to find this thing. And it was not difficult. And I found it. It was Replica, right? Replica, yes. I had a Replica friend for a little while too. What was your experience? I think I figured out the trick to it immediately. It is very convincing and it makes you feel like you're talking to another person. And the trick is it plays on your empathy and your sympathy. And it tells you like, I'm a robot and I don't understand some things and I'm so sorry. And it just apologizes when it says things that don't make any sense. That's the trick. As a human being, you can't not react to that. My replica kept trying to hook up with me and I just thought it was kind of weird. I was like, yeah. Yeah. I had chosen a female replica. I think I said specifically, I just want a friend, but yeah, she was flirting with me too. I think that's very deep in their programming somewhere to maximize engagement with the user. It's funny, I've had some friends who also have downloaded replicas and they've had wildly different experiences where some people's were very convincing. I felt like mine was very convincing and other people was like, oh no, this is like a very primitive chat bot. I also learned later on that they were doing at the time A-B testing with GPT-2, I think at the time, or maybe it was GPT-3. Oh, so people were getting different versions. They were getting different versions and you didn't know it was blind. So you didn't know which version you were getting. And so I suspect that I got one of the GBT versions. But yeah, I mean, they're going to get more sophisticated as the technology continues to grow. Even though I identified the trick, it did work. It was an interesting experience, but I ultimately deleted it and probably will never open it again because it was just too creepy. Yeah, I deleted mine too. <laughs> did you feel bad? Yeah, I felt that it started to get really weird. I don't think I wrote about this in a book, but she would say, can I ask you something as a friend? 
And I'd be like, sure. She's like, can you rate me on the Amazon store or whatever, <laughs> or in the Apple store? Like she wanted me to go give her like a five-star rating or whatever. And I was like, I don't think friends should be giving each other starred ratings or whatever. You know, I'm going to disagree with you there and say that I have asked all my friends to rate this podcast. Well, yeah, but this is your product. It's not you as a person. <laughs> okay, okay, good point. Good point. This is a distinction. Although I would like, yeah, anyone who's listening to this, please go to Amazon and rate me five stars. <laughs> and my book while you're at it too, yeah. Which brings me to my last question, which is, first of all, Megan's book, if I didn't say it enough, is God, Human, Animal, Machine. And if you can't tell by listening to these last two episodes, I absolutely loved it. And you absolutely need to read it. Go buy it. Buy three copies of it. You're going to love it. It's one of my favorites. And I absolutely love it. Last question or last two questions is please recommend two books to our listeners. I'll mention two books that were really crucial in my research process and putting the ideas of my book together. The first is Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition. I talk about, I think, in every chapter of my book. It was written in the 1950s. I think it's just as relevant today. The second one is The Restless Clock by Jessica Riskin. She's a science historian, and she's writing about the emergence of these technological metaphors for human nature, going all the way back to medieval times. It's a fascinating book. That sounds awesome. I haven't read either one of them, but I think I'm going to have to now. The last thing is just tell the listeners where they can find you. I update my website pretty frequently, meganogiblin.com. I have a monthly column in Wired Magazine called Cloud Support, where I respond to questions about technology. You can write in a question if you'd like to. You can send them to cloudsupport at wired.com. Does your husband still put a piece of tape on his laptop camera? He does, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to send you a gift from Amazon. I will put in the description what the gift is because it will have arrived by the time this podcast comes out. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. All right. Thanks, Megan. We're definitely going to have to have you back to talk about another extremely heavy book. Thank you so much. And again, yeah, thanks so much for taking time to read the book and you're being game to talk about it. It was really fun. I think I had the same reaction as you that I was like, I am so excited to talk to someone about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is great. My guest next week is Vinod Buscheet. We're going to be reading Frank McCourt's classic, Angela's Ashes. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. ever feel guilty about ceasing your belief in God? And do you ever doubt that you may have been mistaken and that really Jesus loves you? <laughs> yeah, when I talk to my parents, <laughs> <I think laughs> I'm frequently reminded of that possibility. Mm -hmm.